Hello and welcome to MPB's At Issue, where we discuss and debate the issues facing the Mississippi legislature. I'm Michael Guidry. It was a very busy week at the Capitol, starting with the governor's state of the state address Monday night. Then there was the House passing a brand new education funding plan that would replace the Mississippi Adequate Education Program. Senator Jeremy England introduced a bill to expand in-person voting to a 15-day period for all elections. A bill to close three state universities was introduced, as well as one to close Parchman Prison. But all those may pale in comparison to what happened on the floor of the Mississippi House on Wednesday afternoon. Here's House Medicaid Committee Chair Missy McGee introducing the House's Medicaid expansion bill. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Ladies and gentlemen of the House, I bring before you House Bill 1725. Beyond the policy and politics of this issue, what we really have before us is a solution to a fundamental challenge, access to health care. It's a topic that should transcend politics and economics. For at its core, it is about the well-being and dignity of every Mississippian. Providing opportunities for health insurance is not just a matter of policy. It is a moral imperative and a reflection of the values of our state. McGee reminded lawmakers about high-risk pregnancies caused by a lack of preventive care and basic health screenings. She then challenged lawmakers with a reminder that no better solution than Medicaid expansion has yet been offered. How can we as leaders provide some avenue for access and coverage for low-income workers who can't afford health insurance and don't qualify for traditional Medicaid? How can we empower our citizens to take more ownership in their personal health? For more than a decade, our state has said no to the provisions offered by the federal government to provide basic coverage to low-income working people of Mississippi. In fact, many of the leaders in our state good, well-intentioned people have refused to even allow a conversation to come forward in the form of a bill. Yet we have, we have yet to offer anything that can actually address the problem. No one has presented a better or more affordable way, and no is not a policy that has helped or will help low-income working Mississippians. McGee proceeded to explain the eligibility qualifications, the federal and state contributions to funding, and the assessment that managed care organizations would pay the state. She pointed to studies showing that more than 200,000 Mississippians would gain health care coverage at no additional cost to state taxpayers. Finally, she closed with a moral argument. Vote on this long-awaited issue, I'd make the case, and I would offer the encouragement that sometimes it's okay to do the right thing because... It's the right thing. Let us not miss this moment. It is the first time a proposal such as this has even been up for consideration in our legislature. It's the first time leaders have been willing to truly have a conversation that goes simply beyond no. This plan, while not perfect, is a straightforward proposal that provides a way forward for low-income, hardworking people of our state to have basic health coverage. Let us, as the people's house, take that step forward today and improve the lives of our fellow Mississippians for generations to come. Mr. Speaker, I will yield. Not a single question was asked from the floor, and within less than a minute, voting was underway. Here's House Speaker Jason White. By a vote of 96 yeas, 20 nays, the bill passes. That 96-220 passage represents a veto-proof majority in the House. 
At a press conference afterwards, Speaker White was asked about Governor Tate Reeves' strong opposition to Medicaid expansion. You're looking at a supporter of Governor Reeves. I just simply think you can be a supporter and a champion for Governor Reeves in leading our state as the governor, and you can still be for finding a workable health care solution for this population of Mississippians who are in the coverage gap. I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think you can support our governor. I'm glad he's in the mansion. I hope he will look at the legislation and take it seriously as it moves its way to the Senate and they send their bill to the House. Although the House bill did not contain all the Medicaid provisions favored by Democrats, it still had unanimous support from Democratic members. Here's House Minority Leader Robert Johnson of Natchez. You know, the last time I felt this good, I cried because we changed the flag in the state of Mississippi. But today is a great day for working Mississippians. It is a great day for health care and for the people of the state of Mississippi. And just before we recorded today, the Senate passed a presumptive eligibility bill. This legislation allows low-income pregnant women to receive Medicaid benefits for prenatal care based on proof of income before being formally approved for Medicaid coverage, a process that can often take months. This is truly shaping up to be an historic legislative session for Mississippians and their health care. Each week on At Issue, we sit down with one of the key players of the 2024 legislative session. This week joining us is Senate Minority Leader Derek Simmons of Greenville. Welcome to At Issue. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Mike. Well, it's our our pleasure. All right, so um, I think the the biggest story this session, I think the thing that's gotten the most um, attention from the, the, the outside world looking into the legislature is, is the question of Medicaid expansion. Uh, going into the session, there seemed to be finally an appetite with new leadership in the House, at least, uh, to, to, to pursue. Uh, the House has uh, advanced uh, a bill to expand Medicaid. It has some, you know, some other requirements in it. It's not, it's not a clean expansion of Medicaid, but the House just looks like they're going to be sending something your way. Um, what is the Senate? I mean, as a Senate minority leader, uh, you have a kind of a your, your finger on the pulse of the chamber. Um, now, granted, you are in the minority, but there's 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 still input, there's influence. What's what does the Senate want to see done? Um, at least, at least, especially the Democratic, the Senate Democratic Caucus want to see done when it comes to Medicaid expansion. Well, certainly, we've been pushing for Medicaid expansion for almost a decade or so, just like the House Democrats. Uh, we're talking about two hundred thousand plus working Mississippians without access to health care, one uh, of six uh, women of childbearing age uninsured, 46,000 children in the state of Mississippi uninsured. When you look at an area like the Mississippi Delta, you have one pediatrician for every 4,000 children, and there's not one NICU or neo-intensive care unit Mm -hmm. in the Mississippi Delta. So uh, our hospitals, 54% of rural hospitals, are at risk of immediate closure, and every single hospital in the state of Mississippi uh, are experiencing some kind of financial distress. So um, we know that Medicaid expansion is is the answer to getting or to resolving or at least uh, providing some kind of solution uh, to to the problem that that we know exists in the state of Mississippi regarding health care crisis. On the Senate side, uh, we certainly commend um, Speaker Jason White for his leadership and certainly House Leader uh, uh, Johnson for for working to push Medicaid expansion. And we, the, by a vote of 96 to 20, 
uh, the measure has passed the House and is being transmitted to the Senate. And the way I look at it, Mike, is that we have to treat Medicaid expansion and have to secure the votes on the Senate side like we did in 2020 when we had to change the state flag mm-hmm. uh, because we had a governor who uh, was opposed to changing the state flag. We had to make sure that we had a veto-proof uh, vote in both chambers. And so I look at Medicaid expansion the exact same way since uh, the governor is being a, a vocal about the fact that he still would uh, veto any measure that comes to his desk as it relates to Medicaid expansion. So we need 36 votes on the okay. Senate side, and I will do everything in my power to work uh, with Democrats and also with my colleagues across the aisle and securing that required number of votes to to override a governor veto. So, so it sounds like you know, you know, I know, I know the Democratic, the Democratic caucus in both in both chambers have have long pushed for just a clean expansion of Medicaid. But it's from from what I'm hearing from you is is that there are some concessions to get that get to that 36 vote threshold if it means that some type of Medicaid expansions in place, whether it requires whether whether there's a worker requirement, you know, put into the bill or other things. To me, it sounds like, you know, it, it, there are concessions to be made as long as those 36 votes can you can get to those 36 votes. Well, certainly Democrats, if we actually were in the majority and if it was a Democratic perfect world, we would like to see a clean Medicaid expansion bill uh, uh, just expanding according to the Affordable Care Act. But uh, if a work requirement uh it's what's being sent to us of course, from the House, and we need to have a work requirement in in the bill, which even the bill that we have pushed, uh, uh, the bill has been for working Mississippians. So they're already working, really. Right. And so uh, we're going to support a Medicaid expansion bill because it's just the right thing to do for the state of Mississippi. Okay. And um, it's going to uh, you said it's been it's being transmitted from the House. It'll it'll land with 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 Senator Blackwell, chair of Medicaid. Um, I mean, have you, what conversations have you had with him about this? I've talked to Chairman Blackwell and the bill that was sponsored by him was just to bring the code sections forward. Um, I have not had a discussion with him since the House passed its measure and transmitted it to the Senate. Um but I will have that conversation with him, and I also will have that conversation with Lieutenant Governor Holzman at some point. Okay. Um, in the Senate, there are some Democratic chairs of committee, um, one of which is, is Juan Barnett, uh, the chair of the Corrections Committee, Senate Corrections Committee, um, who um, has filed legislation, and it's in his committee, so it, and it has been taken up, and there's been some there's been some action on it, no vote yet, but some some at least some hearing and debate on it on a measure to to we'll, we'll kind of scale back parchment um parchment is in your neck of the woods i mean you're you're a delta senator um we've heard a lot about you know the the conditions at parchment there's a doj investigation into parchment and just recently um that, that as of today uh, the doj has uh, announced investigations to the other uh, mississippi prisons in wilkinson central and, and south um the the central and south facilities as well um so i mean with with parchment kind of as as a focus, um, what and with with a, with Chair Barnett, you know, um, chairing Senate Corrections, it's, it's a place where the Democratic Party seems to at least have a little bit more, you know, influence. 
what would what, what is the what's the kind of the the idea? What's the direction uh, when it comes to addressing parchment and the, the in the state of corrections in Mississippi? Well, certainly, um, I, I don't believe in the private prisons. Uh, I think that if we're going to have a a system of corrections, they should be state owned and operated facilities, and we should do everything in our power to make sure that we are providing the necessary funds to make sure that that the facilities for those individuals who have made those mistakes and who have to actually spend time there, that they are humane. Uh, we want to make sure that the buildings are of a certain condition uh, and also that they are properly staffed uh, so that those Mississippians that are working in those conditions are, in fact, safe. So we wanted to be safe for those Mississippians who work there and also safe for those Mississippians who are serving time there. Uh, with what we've seen with uh, DOJ's investigation and um, the fact that they have looked at parchment, uh, the conditions were not uh, at a point satisfactory to, to, to any anyone uh, who have any sense of humanity, right? And so uh, I think that, that that is a concern. But when you're from the Mississippi Delta and and you have a measure to, to talk that, that speaks to closing parchment, uh, you have to do certainly a cost-benefit analysis and you have to represent the people in that, in that, in that particular area. And so uh, a lot of single moms work there mm. and they are providing for uh, families in the Mississippi Delta. And so I, I strongly believe when, when, when we support uh, women in Mississippi, we are, in fact, supporting families. And families in the Mississippi Delta, a lot of times, based upon policies that we have seen, and I've been in the Mississippi uh, legislature for 13 years, um, have been looked over and left behind. And I want to make sure that all of the questions are answered as it relates to what will happen to those employees uh, at, at, at Parchman? Uh, Senator Barnett's uh, bill, uh, within it, 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 it expresses the, that the state would, I think, would purchase the correctional facility in Tutwiler uh, that is, I think, currently operated by CoreCivic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think the, the bill's kind of, kind of gotten to this. Uh, it's been held because there's questions about costs and logistics. Um, you know, Tutwiler's, you know, still the Delta. Uh, it, may, it might require a lot of those singles moms to, to endure more of a commute. But, I mean, being from that area, is, I mean, is that a, is that a feasible solution to you um, as far as, like, you know, at least securing the, 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 the work for the, for the people that rely on parchment for work? Well, well if— if a mother is driving a certain distance to work or any employee is, is driving a certain distance to work, if he or she has to drive a longer distance, then the question is whether or not you are constructively taking their job, right? And so uh, the Delta is a vast area. And so we actually will leave Greenville and drive to Cleveland for a job or leave Cleveland and drive to Illinois for a job. So driving uh, is not uncommon uh, for work in the Mississippi Delta. Um, And so if all the jobs would be at Tutwiler, uh, then it may not be as much of a concern as what we have heard in the halls and walls of the Capitol, Mm -hmm. uh, which is they will be guaranteed a job at some regional jail or some jail or some facility in the system. 
in the Mississippi Department of Corrections. Well, that is concerning, and I know senators do have and representatives do have questions, certainly the ones from the Delta, about what, how does that look? Mm-hmm. And so if a person has to leave the Delta and go to Marshall County or leave the Delta and go to Wilkinson County or leave the Delta and go to Central Mississippi and Rankin County, uh, then the question is, are you essentially taking their job? And so uh, I just like to look at all the data. Uh, I would would have loved for the state to have moved first in purchasing uh, the Tutwiler facility so we can know that it is a state facility that that those individuals will be guaranteed a job because it's a state facility as opposed to moving in the direction of closing parchment first without the actual purchase. Because Mm -hmm. if you close it and then those individuals have to apply uh, privately to Core Civic for a job, we don't know how that how they really look. And then they would lose their state benefits and, and all of that as well. Certainly. So, um, the conversation about parchment and scaling it back, I mean, how much is that, do you, to, to your knowledge, is it informed by what's happening in Alabama um, with the with the, basically the DOJ and the uh, and their investigation and now Alabama's faced with a, you know, the construction of a billion-dollar prison? I mean, it's, it's hard, some of that... Is that part of the cost-benefit analysis? Is you know, they're trying to maybe get in front of any potential DOJ ruling and, and finding uh, that would require something along those lines? Certainly. I, I do think that is a major consideration on why we are seeing some of the measures that we uh, that have been proposed this legislative session. Um, and, you know, uh, anytime the federal government is looking at the state of Mississippi, then certainly we want to respond and do the right thing uh, policy-wise. Um, um, and so I, I do think that's a consideration. Okay. Yeah. Uh, same kind of in the same vein, um, you know, it, it, we're talking about conditions in prison, um, you know, parchment. Looking at what happens to you know, the incarcerated after they get out, um, a lot of uh, I know that there's been litigation regarding Mississippi's uh, antiquated uh, disenfranchisement clause. It's, in, it's part of the 1890 Constitution. Um, the, the the motives and, and methods I, I think are, are clear as to why those why those that that disenfranchisement clause was written in there. Um, but we're seeing some movement. Um, we've seen at least vocally uh, from the Speaker of the House uh, this desire to kind of explore reenfranchisement. How do we give those formerly incarcerated Mississippians who've, who've served their, their, their penance, who've time, time and or fines, however it might be. But the conversation's at least happening now that uh, the, to find a path to get these, get these um, residents their, their, their suffrage back, their, their voting rights back. Uh, so I guess two parts. Um, uh, as the Senate minority leader and as a member of the Senate, um, how do you feel seeing the House be the one that kind of takes this up? Um, and, and really becomes the vocal, at least the vocal leader in this change. But secondly, you know, as someone um, uh, um, who, who represents a, a caucus and a community uh, that has long been the target of things like this, the, the, the disenfranchisement clause in the Constitution, uh, that at least there might be an appetite for some legislative solution to it. Well, as one of our legislative priorities, and and I have served and had the pleasure and the honor of serving my colleagues as a Senate Minority Leader since 2017, 
and we've always had election reform as one of our legislative priorities. And in our election reform priority, we have always push for the expansion or the restoration of voting rights. And we uh, have opposed any measure or any policy that will restrict uh, or or would actually take away or remove a person's right to, to vote. And so because we believe it's sacred and we believe that right to vote is fundamental. And so uh, the fact that it's being pushed or we see movement in the House, uh, we embrace that. Um, to the extent that we have not seen the movement that we wanted to see on the Senate side, uh, we recognize that uh, it's still the Mississippi legislature. And sometimes we get movement on issues uh, that originate in the Senate. Sometimes we get movement on a lot of issues that we care about that would originate in the House. Uh, but we still embrace and accept uh, and uh, will certainly support wherever the movement is coming from mm-hmm. because we like to just at the end of the day being the minority party we want good policy in the state of Mississippi to improve the quantity and quality of life of all Mississippians and anytime it's bad policy of course we try to do everything we can to make that policy as as uh, less harmful uh, to, to Mississippians uh, as possible uh, and so yes we would love to see uh, um uh, the right to vote to be restored, um, and we certainly understand the historical context as to why uh, that was placed actually in our Constitution. And then speaking of, um, the again, using the Constitution as a segue, um, we've, we've spoken before. Uh, how the how important it is for your caucus to to bring back the ballot initiative, um, and we've we've seen some movement in the Senate in, in prior sessions. Um, you, know, you just kind of talked about like where things originate. Mm-hmm. I believe the last two sessions the Senate has tried to originate legislation that restored in some ways the ballot initiative. Um, it, it seems like that was getting traction in, in both chambers. Um, but in either iteration, it, in, I've had conversations with Minority Leader Johnson. In either iteration, it doesn't. It does not seem to be the clean restoration of the process that I think a lot of um, legislative Democrats want. So, um, where we, we talked about concessions earlier with Medicaid, I mean, where where where, where do you stand, and, and what are the concessions you're willing to give when it comes to uh, restoring the ballot initiative? Because the, what we have coming out of the House has restrictions, um, and we haven't seen what the Senate's done yet. Well, my guess, you know, um, after the November 2020 election where the voters in Mississippi came out in record numbers and passed medical marijuana, uh, we saw a push in the 2021 regular legislative session to to amend or change what the voters of Mississippi had decided in November uh, of the previous year. And also uh, the Supreme Court considered uh, uh, the, the ballot initiative uh, in the Constitution and declared it unconstitutional. Democrats believe that um, what was next was a ballot initiative for Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons we, we believe that the ballot initiative process was declared unconstitutional because the voters, 80 percent of voters believe in Medicaid expansion and want Medicaid expansion. And the Mississippi legislature until recently with a 96 to 20 vote in the House had failed to speak to Medicaid expansion. And when we fail to speak, that ballot initiative process that was in the Constitution allows uh, the citizens of the state of Mississippi to put an issue on the ballot. So we would like to see, and we have advocated for, and we support 
just doing simply what the Supreme Court decided in April of 2021, which was the districts. We no longer have five congressional districts. We only have four. Congressional just address, yeah, addressing the proportionment, addressing the proportionment of the actual districts and keep the the process exactly how it was already written in the Constitution and address the issue that they they, they opined upon that was unconstitutional, which was the districts and the mm-hmm. districts alone. Right. And the measures that we have seen since then, 22 and 23 and now in 24, have actually placed a lot of restrictions on it. Have increased the number of signatures that were required or, or uh, the measure that passed the House uh, put language in what issues should not be able to be brought as a ballot initiative. Uh, and so, um, is that a true ballot initiative? Then, if, if if it restricts what the voters can vote on to you and to you and members of your caucus, is 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 that a true ballot initiative? It's not. Okay, it's not. Uh, but if they want to go down that road, of course, Democrats believe that we should never have to talk about the flag again, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, to all your listeners out there and all your viewers out there, you can expect from yours truly. An amendment that will basically say that we should never, ever talk about the flag again. Leave it as it is. <laughs> Leave it as it is. Right? Okay. Uh, and so we still need to restore the ballot initiative. And, and to, to your question, I think Democrats will, will certainly consider and look at very closely the language as it relates to uh, the ballot initiative and how, how we restore that. Because we think that restoring it is certainly uh, more important than... Uh, getting caught up in, in little small details, but we want it to be a workable solution that we put back uh, and we want it to be a- a- attainable. We don't want to pass something and uh, Mississippians are unable to have a real uh, say at the ballot box when the legislature fails to speak just because they can't uh Put an issue on the ballot because they can't actually do yeah. what the law we put in place as it relates to ballot initiative. And since it's a constitutional moon, it is going to have to pass both chambers with with two thirds. That's correct. Vote, and we'll have to go to the and we'll have to go to the people. Um, is there, um, you know, that being said, and this is a question I haven't really asked anybody yet. But uh, that being said, I mean, it's, if 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 it's if it passes with a two third majority um, out of out of the Senate and the House. Uh, and it goes to the people without with, with restrictions that that your caucus uh, fundamentally fundamentally disagrees with. Um, it has it, 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 in order to take the next step. It does need ratification from the from the people. Well, where will you be vocally when it comes to um, engaging with the public about the ballot initiative? Will we will we see will we see opposition from lawmakers uh, to, to 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 the electorate saying, "Don't do this." You know, this is we think we can do better. I I, I think. What you will see after the vote and between what happens after it, the, you, you're going to see advocacy based upon the vote. OK. Uh, uh, if we support the ballot initiative, you likely probably will get Democrats to be advocating to the electorate to vote for it. Mm-hmm. And if if it's a ballot initiative uh, that's proposed and we oppose it, but it still passes. Uh, you're likely to see Democrats t- to advocate to the people that they should not vote for it. And, th- and then and then if that is the case, well, will the concern then be, well, they tried and we we as electorate, we, we said no and that's it. Or do you think there'll <laughs> be an appetite, especially from your caucus, to take it up again? And, and, and again, this is all hypothetical, but yeah. to take it up again and, and and try to get it to where you think it should be. We we want to do whatever 
we believe it would be the best opportunity for Mississippians to have a voice at the ballot box when when the Mississippi legislature has failed to speak to it. And so um, we wouldn't want to just to put a ballot initiative back in place, but it's not attainable or it's not right. not able to be achieved by the people, you know. Are there any are there any new restrictions that you I mean you mentioned the putting in a minute about the flag. <laughs> but um but are you open to any any kind of added restrictions? Uh for one, uh, I think one thing that had been kind of brought up and and at least, you know, uh, at least was entertained uh was the idea of not allowing legislative uh the legislature to create like alternatives, as they did with medical marijuana, and as they did with, I think it was initiative forty-two with the MAP. Um, is that something um, that a restriction? It's not clean. It is a restriction, but is that a is that a restriction your caucus can get behind? Well, I mean, the the the, the current the the law allows you know a legis- the legislature to come up with an alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do recognize. And I do believe that the reason why Initiative 42, the initiative to fully fund our schools, failed was because um, the alternative was very confusing and the voters just didn't know how to vote when you had two um, items on the ballot to vote for, 42 mm-hmm. and 42A. Mm-hmm. Um, but the voters got smarter when we actually took up uh, Initiative 65 for medical marijuana. Mm-hmm. And uh, the advocacy was actually uh, making sure that voters understood what to vote for and what not to vote for. And I believe that uh, if we had a a good ballot initiative, uh, even with the alternative, now voters know what to expect uh, when they see uh, uh, the alternative as opposed to the initial uh, uh, ballot initiative, the initiative that they put on the ballot. So that restriction... I, I don't. I don't know. Well, we, okay. we can discuss it, but uh, I, I don't think it'll make or break us. Okay. Because I think that if we could have a ballot initiative that just speaks to uh, reflecting the four congressional districts and no other restrictions, then you wouldn't see even me uh, making uh, amendments to, to to put other restrictions on the ballot. Okay. Initiative. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll shift here. Um, uh, a bill has been filed in your chamber um, to uh, to close three Mississippi universities. That doesn't explicitly name you know which ones, but um, but as a result of kind of this this we've heard from um, in, in, in in legislative hearings, uh, the, the we've seen the numbers of this this what they call enrollment cliff. Enrollments kind of dropping, especially is especially hurting the regional. Um, state universities mm-hmm. um, again like we've talked you characterize yourself as a, as a, as a Delta senator um, and so uh, Delta State University Mississippi Valley State University uh, two you know regional um, state universities that have seen some declining enrollment I mean I think almost all of them except with the exception of the two uh, the University of Mississippi and Mississippi State have seen uh, trends in enrollment going down uh, what I mean how What's your stance on on closing any universities, um, and what do you think? You know, legislation like this, whether or not it's it passes in committee, whether or not it's even taken up for a voting committee. But what does introduction of legislation like this say to you, at least, about the um, the attitudes towards uh, regional institutions of higher learning? I, I think regional institutions of higher learning they have their purpose and they are needed. 
uh, if you live in the Mississippi Delta uh, and you you work in the Mississippi Delta and you can go to select Delta State University or Mississippi Valley State University, uh, it, it just meant so much or it means so much to the people that live there and to their families to be educated in the region that they grew up and the region that had given so much to them, right? And to take away um, institutions of higher learning, no matter where they are, I just think it's bad business, it's bad policy in the state of Mississippi. We should be figuring out ways uh, to respond to whatever the the current challenge is and come up with uh, a solution to overcome that particular challenge or that obstacle. We should be finding ways to fully fund our schools at every level of government, Mike, whether it's K-12, whether it's community colleges, whether it's uh, institutional higher learning. Uh, find ways to to reward and retain our faculty members and our staff at, at these institutions, not proposing legislation to close them. Uh, do you think the push towards workforce development, while while in, in some in some degree, I think anyone can argue is a, is a necessary and, and and noble cause. But do you think that the, this this recent push towards that is at the is to the detriment of the state's uh, you know four year in, uh, institutions? I, I I really look at it as just another tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, everyone does not want to attend a four-year college or institution. Right. You know, some want to go to community college. Some want to do workforce. And and I support that. You know, when you're from from the Delta or anywhere else in rural Mississippi, uh, you may not want to go to Ole Miss or USM or Jackson Mm -hmm. State. But that's okay. That's okay. I just think those opportunities should exist, and we should create as many opportunities for Mississippians to have success in the state of Mississippi and do everything we can so we don't still experience one of the biggest challenges that we are experiencing, which is the brain drain. Right. People are leaving the state of Mississippi, and we lost population based upon the last uh, census. And so we need to try to do everything we can to create those opportunities. And when you talk about uh, closing universities, uh, you create an opportunity. I mean, you actually taking away those opportunities for people. I um, I asked uh, the minority leader of the House the same question. I'm going to ask you. Um, there are clearly, you know, policy priority differences between your caucus and and uh, the Republican caucus. But going into this session, uh, aside from aside from Medicaid expansion, because we, we've we've discussed that one, um, what other what other you know policy priorities are there that would you, you see a lot of bipartisan support? Bipartisan support. Um, certainly, I would say there's bipartisan support about uh, expanding infrastructure. Um, um, the largest infusion of federal dollars that we've seen in the state of Mississippi was the bipartisan Biden-Harris infrastructure deal. Mm-hmm. And um, and I certainly want to take this opportunity to thank uh, U.S. Senator Roger Wicker and Congressman Thompson for supporting the measure. Uh, we may not have gotten the support from our other uh, federal congressional leaders, uh, but they took the credit once the money got here, right? But I do believe, and I want to take this opportunity to say this, that legislative Democrats believe before, even before we got the federal dollars, that we should have our own state comprehensive infrastructure plan because we need to invest in our own infrastructure and we should do that uh, from High Street uh, at the state capitol. Uh, and 
the, the question is going to be, Mike, what is the real outlook of the state of Mississippi once all of those federal dollars go away? And so um, I do believe that we would have bipartisan support as it relates to broadband and what we do as it relates to broadband. Now, the devil is in the details um, because we want to make sure that those broadband dollars go as, 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 it, as it relates to legislative Democrats. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that those broadband dollars go to the areas that need it most. Well, sure. So then with that in mind, what's your assessment of Beam so far? I mean, former Senator Sally Doty, one of your former colleagues, is heading up Beam. So what, what's your assessment? Um, Sally is a great person. I support Sally, and uh, I, I look forward to her leadership as it relates to Beam. Um, I've been present when she has done presentations. Uh, I, I will say I am concerned about some of the maps that I've seen. Uh, the, the maps clearly show areas that are desperately in need of broadband. I'm ju- I just would like to see those areas get the broadband first. Okay. Uh, and, and the same way how, how legislative Democrats and how I personally felt about infrastructure. I think anytime we get infrastructure dollars uh, in the state of Mississippi or when we are passing or considering policy as it relates to that, we should start with those areas uh, that have been neglected the most or who need the dollars the most and work our way. Uh, down down that list. And the same thing, I believe, with broadband. I think we will be better as a state if we can start in those areas that are most in need and work our way to areas that are least in need as it relates to broadband. Okay. And what about as far as infrastructure as in, um, as it relates to, you know, forms of alternative energy, roads, bridges, um, you know, are, are those, are, are, y'all, are you seeing eye to eye um, with your, with, with leadership across the aisle in, in those regards? I'm very optimistic. Okay. All right. Well, I guess we can leave it there then. Um, <laughs> Senate, Minority, Senate Minority Leader Derek Simmons, thank you so much for spending some time and speaking with us today, uh, this week uh, on that issue. Mike, it's always great to be at MPB. News is all around us, and Mississippi Edition is the best way to stay informed about your community and what's happening across the state. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us weekdays at 8.30 a.m. for a half an hour of in-depth discussions about important issues affecting your life. Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio, or you can also find us online at mpbonline.org and on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get straight to the point with views from both sides of the aisle. We now welcome Austin Barber and Brandon Jones back to our MPB studios. Austin is a Republican strategist and founder of the Clearwater Group. Brandon is an attorney and former Democratic member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. Gentlemen, welcome back to At Issue. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. So let's uh, start briefly. Um, the state of the state was this week. Um, a, a a tone of of, of I think... Shared vision coming from the governor, focusing on the things that uh, I guess where his priorities align with legislative priorities. Um, so, uh, Austin, I'll, ta- I'll start with you. Um, did anything about this state of the state uh, strike you as different or more compelling than previous states of the state? And what is kind of the 
What what is the modus operandi with with this particular uh, address? Well, it's very clear the governor was trying to give a speech that was focused more on policy than politics. He said that in the very beginning, and I think the speech uh, laid that out. He, you know, obviously, we've had some humongous, uh, you know, great news lately regarding you know. Um, the economic development. I almost gave up mid 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 sentence there. Sorry, Michael. It's Sorry. Today's morning. We've had some. Re- I'm not having a stroke, Brandon. It's okay. <laughs> We've had some really good news on the economic development front, and obviously that's the governor. Two huge special oh, sessions yeah. is what you're. Yeah, absolutely. To, yeah. That's 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 what the governor really wanted to talk a lot about. That's his number one priority is continuing to focus on recruiting new jobs, and part of that are all kinds of things: infrastructure investment, not just roads. Roads are a big part of this. Ports railroads, airports, because as he said in his speech, Brandon, he said, listen, the faster that, you know, our businesses in Mississippi can move products to market faster, the better it is for them. And we have to make it easier for private business in Mississippi to be able to do that. Uh, One of the big uh, issues that the governor's been talking about for a while are capacity projects through the Mississippi Department of Transportation. These are roads that are beyond capacity. We see those in DeSoto County, Madison County, Jackson County, Harrison County, these places where we have too many trucks, too many cars, and not enough roads. There's a big focus on improving that, sending more dollars to, to MDOT so MDOT can widen our highway. Ways. Why not 55 in DeSoto County? Why not 55 in Madison County? And projects in Rankin and, 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 and on the coast as well. So it's good. I really appreciate the governor talking about that because that really matters. And then lastly, you know, he spent a lot of time continuing to talk about how do we improve on the Mississippi miracle, which is, of course, the education turnaround we've seen in Mississippi. He specifically talked about let's come up with 12 new uh, magnet schools around the state that would focus on math and engineering and even specific specifically said, let's use the Central High School, which right. is right across the street from here, as as a shining example of how we can do that so these kids can be better prepared when they leave high school, go to college for, obviously, the, this this tech industry. So it, it wasn't just 40,000 foot. He really got into some specifics, and I thought he did a good job. What do you think? Well, um, look, he, he did try to strike a conciliatory tone at the beginning of it. I, I think um, there were some of us who thought this sounds a little bit like gaslighting. We need to get the guy who wrote this speech to meet the guy who runs his social media account, and then they can both go meet the governor, and maybe we can get a, a little bit more of this kind of working together vibe going mm-hmm. in terms of actual governance. Because, look, Governor Reeves has been a flamethrower. He has been a very tough political customer, and he's isolated a lot of people in that legislature. So I'm sure some of them are sitting there listening to this going, okay. But you also do tend to see that in lame duck terms. This is the last time he will be running for governor. And so all that's left is over the next four years is what's going to be the legacy of this yeah. governor. So hopefully what he can get done. That's right. What can he get done? There was a line in there that I thought was strange. Um, It was like a combination of lines, and I wrote it down. We have a crisis of purpose and an abundant despair in America. Idleness is slowly killing us. The West is recognizing what we've lost. Uh, That was some of that. Y'all may remember George W. Bush taking in Donald Trump's inauguration speech when he was like, what in the world? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the feeling I had when I was hearing that. Um, And there was some swipes at just the economy generally. I mean, guys, the U.S. economy has grown by 2%. The Fed is talking about dropping interest rates several times here in the coming months. 
the every economist has basically gotten off of their bad jobs reports and are saying that's heading in the right direction. So it was kind of a <laughs> there was a little bit of that contrast that I didn't fully get. But to all of Austin's points, there was an effort to dive in to places where there might be some areas to work together. So as as critical as I may be of the governor and as much as I may have found this a little bit out of character for him, I do appreciate any time that somebody tries to do the job and say, hey, I'm I'm not going to be that person today. I'm going to try to be the person that can work with the legislature. Yeah, I actually have the speech pulled up and I. And that is a very uh, interesting line and lines that he gave. But what he was talking about, I, I, I did just look look above that. He was talking about our workforce. He's like, look, we've got a strong workforce here in Mississippi. He says, we make fridge, we make fighter jets, we make cars, we sew cotton. We can do these things here. We don't. Know, we no longer have to send all these types of jobs around the world. Let's do them right here in Mississippi. Yeah. So, taking the tone of, of the speech and this focus on finding things that. The finding that common ground between you know, what the governor's priorities are and what legislative priorities could be, um, I think I think it's clear what was also missing out of that, and uh, I think not addressing probably what the one that the largest kind of. Uh, divergence between the legislature and the governor this session when that's Medicaid expansion. He didn't bring it up. Um, he focused on what things they could, what common ground they could find. But uh, that that the momentum for Medicaid expansion is growing this week. The House passed uh, by well, a vote of 96 to 20, I believe, passed uh, a form of expansion. So um, that train is rolling. Um, the governor didn't address it in the state of the state, but um, where where um, where is this headed? We know at least we have we have a major a veto um, a veto proof supermajority in the House. Where is this headed, Brandon? Well, if if you take him at his word, it sounds like he was trying to you know excise any subject that might be controversial from the speech. So maybe maybe that was the effort. Like, I'm not, not going to touch that because we think don't it was. we don't agree yeah, on that. It was. Um, now it's it's I'm sure there I'm sure there were people sitting there, uh, Lieutenant Governor Hoseman, for example, who has tied the expansion issue to workforce development mm-hmm. and 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 how it improves the workforce. So I'm sure he was thinking, well, you know, it's a big ingredient. Um, but yeah, I, I think that was probably intentional. And and again, I, I know as a guy who has sat in that chamber before and listened to these, I. It's always nice when you have somebody giving a talk that's not trying to get your blood pressure through the roof. And so maybe that was just the, the idea here. Now with exp- Not talking at you, talking to you? Kind yeah, of yeah, I like yeah. that. And, I mean, you know, I, I was only there for Governor Barber speeches, and the, the guy could give a speech, and I had to respond to one of them. I was the, oh. the response to the State of the State one time. Uh, but I, I always liked it a little bit better when you were getting, yeah, talked talk with, not at. Um Expansion, what we brought up last week, uh, I don't think I would have ever predicted that after all these years of not having a bill, the bill comes out to the floor this week, Austin. There are no questions asked. No amendments offered. No amendments offered. No debate. And the thing just comes flying out of there. I mean, credit to uh, Misty McGee. Credit to Jason White. Credit to... You know, Robert Johnson, minority credit, leader, credit yeah. to everybody over there in the House for talking about this and addressing it and coming out with a, I mean, a, a product that there seems to be some agreement on. Well, and, you know, you you've not been critical of the speaker. You've you've had questions about some things. And I'm glad to hear you say that the speaker deserves credit on this because that is discipline. And again, he's 
he's less than you know ninety days into his first term, and this was a this was a priority issue for him, and uh, he, he had he had his folks in line. He was able to get uh, the minority side in line as well. They they this was a big issue for them, and they they worked very closely with him. Well, and we so, should say in terms of the legislative craft, that's not a small thing because he's difficult. he's like thirty days into his yeah. into it, or mm-hmm. maybe more now. Yeah. But right. you know, it, it's nearing sixty, but still, you, yeah. you we've all witnessed what it looks like when everybody's not on the same page and yeah. how easy it can be. You have a lot of people over there with their own ideas, so to get anything done. In that manner, well, it was the same way in committee too. I was in the committee that um, that Chairman Misty McGee held, and, and it was there was a few questions, not many questions. I think people understood the bill, understood the issue, of course, because we've been talking about this for more than a decade. Right, um, that, that helps. And going into the session, I mean, the fact that both leaders have came out prior to the session say this is something we're, to, we're going to consider I, I imagine going through the process that that helps find some type of common ground within within the committee process and getting it on the floor and getting it getting it to where because I'm sure there's 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 optics in this too right if you're the speaker if you're the minority leader and having a bill go to the floor and it be like a, a, a resounding yes vote um, that 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 results in applause from the gallery from from even on the floor I mean there's an optics part of this is there not yeah, and, and I, but I think it also goes to, um, well, several things. I, I, you know, we mentioned we mentioned Chair Chairwoman McGee, uh, her leadership on this issue. Uh, it takes a lot, and it's no small part of this process to talk to enough people in advance so that their concerns really are addressed. So that you get that the applause doesn't happen if the conversations haven't taken place. Mm -hmm. And so what this gave us was a snapshot of what this chamber can be when it functions at its best. And and so, you know, we don't have a lot of these moments in this room when we're talking (laughs) about Mississippi government. I kind of had a a real warm feeling, Austin, thinking, now look, it's not perfect. You all heard me last week. I have some problems with this bill. But this is hundreds of thousands of Mississippians that are going to have access to coverage that they don't have right now. You cannot sneeze at that. And the fact that they didn't just talk about it, they actually went through the motion of putting together a substantive bill that has broad support across the aisle. That's just, I mean, what you know, hey, I'm, I'm critical when we have bad weeks. I got to be positive when right. we have good weeks. This was good. Well, and Missy McGee, I've worked with her for years on hospital issues. She she does her homework. She's always uber prepared. You know, this is this is a big job for her to be to be uh, chairperson of the of the Medicaid committee for any person. She's 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 uh, taken the head on and obviously passed an enormous piece of legislation out of her committee on the floor. Also, very important to note that that Trey Lamar. Uh, of course, Chairman of Ways and Means passed a big bill right after hers, which is taking the federal exchange and, and creating a state exchange, and a, a state exchange, which I should say, my um, friend Mike Cheney has wanted to do as our insurance commissioner for a long time. And uh, Trey handled that bill with ease. And that's very important because I don't understand the funding part of it. Like, literally, I don't I, I don't know enough about it. Right. That, that was not a rhetorical I'm not trying to be a smart aleck, um, but I, I, I need to get better educated on that. But obviously what this does is this allows Mississippi to control the exchange where private insurance. And the last time I talked about private mm-hmm. insurance policies uh, will be available um, to, you know, 
folks, I think he said from the 100% to 400% of the federal poverty level, but I need to get that details. Austin That's likes a, that private insurance. I, I do I like private insurance. I don't know what kind of experience you're having I, with I, your carriers, I but, I mean, hats off. Uh, well, <laughs> we won't talk about specific carriers on the show. <laughs> yeah, that's not. I don't that's know not. Advertisers are. No, no. Yes. Yeah. Underwriters. This is public radio. <laughs> we underwriters. Have, we have underwriters. Excuse, thank you for clarifying um, that. Um, and then uh, uh, keeping in the same vein, I mean, there is a piece um, – to you know, Medicaid expansion, not the broad bill that we've talked about, but there's a piece to Medicaid expansion headed to the governor. Uh, the Senate has passed presumptive eligibility, which will, um, and I believe that was a House bill that came over earlier in the session, if I'm not mistaken, or is it? I don't it, know. You don't I, know? I'm not remembering that bill. But Can but, we go to Brandon on that one? <laughs> but either way, I mean, there's another piece to this presumptive eligibility yeah. um, that is going to allow a low-income pregnant woman to get Medicaid benefits oh. um, for prenatal care yeah. before having to go through the whole yeah, approved that's right. coverage. Did, did that pass last year? Some version of that? Well, no, passed, well, we we that passed was, last year extending the, yeah, the period the, of care yeah, that's right. coverage. That was post. We extended post. That was extension of postpartum post last year. For this a year, is this is this is presumptive eligibility. When, when women get pregnant, they don't have to uh, wait to get. Through uh, get approval through you know the division of Medicaid before they can re- start receiving Medicaid yeah, benefits, which is super important because listen, we need to keep these babies and these women as healthy as we possibly can. We want them to have all the best outcomes during pregnancy, all the best outcomes when these babies are born. And look, it's it, it that's a that's, that's really important. And I always have to say this from a fiscal standpoint, it, it, it's a it's important too because that's less hospital bills that either their insurance if they're on Medicaid and Medicaid would have to pay for most importantly to keep those keep those people healthy the babies and the mothers well we've we've heard reports um, for, for years about the red tape involved with the administration of you know a lot of programs but this 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 program in particular has been wrought with challenges and so this business of not having to go through that onboarding process but just being presumed to be eligible that that's such a huge thing and getting care while the process <laughs> you know is completed that's right and, and you think about the stress that is on people that are going through that process it, just take that off the table and just let them do what they need to do to get to that healthy delivery is is big so look we we have to address those things. That's two bills in two successive years that get at it. First one with coverage and now with a presumption. That's that's good. Good stuff. All right. Uh, I do want to pivot to corrections. Um, uh, we heard from the DOJ, the, the Department of Justice, yesterday uh, that uh, in addition to Parchman, three more Mississippi correctional facilities are under federal investigation. That's the Wilkinson County um, facility, Central Mississippi and South Mississippi, um, all, all due to, you know, presumed violations of, of constitutional rights and liberties. Uh, so, you know, this is on the heels of Parchman. Um Burl Kane has, I think, been uh, the commissioner of the Department of Corrections now for or going on uh, over three years. Uh, he inherited the Parchman investigation, um, but now we have new ones. What does this say about you know the state of corrections in, in, in Mississippi, Brandon? Well, there are a lot of organizations who have been observing this for a long time, and, and what they have seen is very consistent with what the DOJ reports, which is these are dangerous places, that they're understaffed, that you have a problem retaining uh, people to work in these places. Um, and so it, it has been, and we've had horrific moments. I mean, I'm sure listeners will recall that a couple of years ago, Parchment was literally on fire. Um, we've had 
too many people lose their lives, you know, serving their time. We've had too many people um, who just live in constant fear. And, and you saw in the report the, the allusions to what happens in solitary and how dangerous that can be. It's on and on and on, and, it, and it's dehumanizing. Um, and it's, it's not, from a, from a moral standpoint, I, I just, it's, it's just a heartbreaking thing that we're not doing this job better. And these are three facilities. This, this, is, this is really, if you, if you think about it, it covers almost everybody that's, that's part of this system. Um, now, and I'm sure, Austin, you have something to say about that, and, and we can talk about um, the issue generally. But I think this conversation should increasingly be turned towards our over-incarceration of Mississippians. We are about 85 percent higher than the national average in terms of per capita numbers of people in prison. Um, we have gone up over the last 25 years, something like 350 mm-hmm. percent. I mean, we, we have a, an addiction to incarceration in this state, and we're not totally unusual in that. But I would like to see the legislature revisit some of Chairman Barnett's bills over in the Senate side that have to do with creating a reasonable and safe path to parole mm-hmm. and thinking about what that looks like, because we have such a, you know, lock them up, throw away the key way of approaching this issue that you can expect violence. You can expect difficulty retaining people to work in these places if you're not addressing the incarceration problem itself. And so I hope that we don't just look at this in terms of a bricks and mortar question, Mm -hmm. but we look at it in terms of what are we doing to create a reasonable pathway for people to reform their lives and reenter society. Yeah, well, so what, what is what is the, the central issue here then, Austin? Well, okay. it's pretty big, uh, and I'm not an expert on it, but, but this is how I view this, and I'm trying to view this um, sort of from a government a, a government view of this and what's the government's role in trying to, to, to fix this. And, um, I mean, obviously Department of Corrections is an executive branch agency that reports to the governor. It's, I, I remember this early in Tate's um, first term. I don't even know if he had been <laughs> sworn in yet, and there was this crisis uh, going on at Parchment. Right. I, it was either December or January. December it was December, it was December yeah. into January, and, and yeah. it was it, kind a, of it was sort of. A, and Michael, you remember this? It was an everyday story in you know name your news publication in Mississippi, and also became a national story about the the prisoners who were been murdered in prison. And this was a horrible situation. And one of the first, you know, emergencies that that um, Tate Reeves had to, to deal with. And I think he did a pretty good job of moving from the situation that we had then to where we are now. I'm certainly not saying things are perfect. I do look and I, and I wanted to just briefly read a half sentence in the statement that came from the Department of Corrections. Okay. And it says this is in response to the DOG report. We will work with the DOJ. Okay. We will work with the DOJ to identify possible resolutions to enhance inmate safety and continue ongoing efforts to improve operations at MDOC. It's very clear if you read this, if you talk to, the, to people in corrections, th- th- they, are, they are dealing with a lot of the same issues that private entities, public entities around the, around the country are dealing with. Finding people that, that, that not only want to go to work, but work in this kind of environment and, ha- and paying people enough money to want to go do that. I cannot imagine how difficult that job is. And I thank the Lord that we have people who are willing to do that. It's great for them. And I applaud them for those efforts. So I, I, 
Brandy can get into it on a much more deeper mm-hmm. level, but I am looking. Yes, it's obvious that there there are issues there. We got to find enough people to want to go work, and how do we pay them adequately to get the best people that you can for those types of jobs? Uh, and good lord, that's obviously a, a difficult situation. That I'm sure not. It's, it's not just Mississippi that's dealing with that. But I know we're only talking Mississippi. When it comes to the the, the violence and the, and the staffing, I mean, it, it is it is it like a chicken egg thing? I mean, is is it are they are these places more dangerous because they're understaffed, or are they understaffed because no one wants to go there because they're too dangerous? I mean, like how, how do you how do we get out of that but, cycle? But can I answer this? How do I know? Right. I'm thankfully I've never been to prison. I don't plan on going to prison. I don't. He might have a, a really good answer. That's lots of. I wouldn't know how to answer that question. We're we're over incarcerated. We, we just simply are. So it's, it's, it's our, our answer. Our answer has our, our knee jerk answer has been to put people in prison, mm-hmm. and, and we have to say. Um, Predominantly black men. We have a generation of black men in the state of Mississippi who are incarcerated. The incarceration rate for black men far exceeds the incarceration rate for about two and a half. Yeah, I'm sorry, far exceeds the the population of black Mississippians. It's it's it's. And look, this isn't even a controversial thing. This is just a a factual thing. It's we're in a and this 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 goes back decades, um, and it's not Mississippi alone. But you know, there are some states who are more efficient than others in, in this. And so I think, again, let's reexamine kind of where we are in this stuff. It's been 10 years since House Bill 585 passed, which was a bipartisan piece of legislation that actually Governor uh, Tate Reeves, who was then in the Senate, helped to get through. He was losing the other. And, and that's right, yeah. in, in, in the Senate. And and what um, what was there were several things that ha- happened in that bill, but one of them was it, it meant that it, for technical violations, you weren't just having your sentence extended for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to go back to looking at stuff like that. Um, there needs to be more focus put on this parole board. This parole board bears some responsibility here because there are people who are coming up before them who would pass muster in virtually any state, and they have taken such an aggressive posture on parole that it is just like banging your head up against a wall. I would like to see us with a parole board that understands carceral system a little bit better and that appreciates that if we don't release the tension valve somewhere, you can't hire your way out of an over-incarceration problem. You can't build your way out of it. At some point, we just have to change our philosophy on having thousands of people live their entire life behind bars and, and so I, I hope that this spurns not only a conversation about things on the ground, which are serious and people are living in that situation, but again, kind of look at the system as a whole. We've had several good bills that got really close. In fact, the governor vetoed 2123. I just remember that Senate bill 2123 from two or three sessions ago that came out of the Senate Corrections Committee. I hope this calls us back to stuff like that, because you're really going to just continue to kind of kick the can down the road until you address that question and that brings me to parchman uh senator juan barnett who who is chair of corrections i was also authored a bill um it's it's received some attention in committee uh but it has been tabled it, it, it is it is a it's a built a phase out parchment um and there's some pieces into in there that that would you know um secure employment for parchment uh, employees at another facility. It also includes a piece that would, uh, you know, work, that calls for the state to acquire uh, a private uh, facility uh, in the Tallahatchie County, the the Tutwaller Core Civic. Um, you know, is this is this a path towards? Um, I mean, 
it was the, I think Barnett well, Senator Barnett said it's just a really old place. We know about the the, the, the problems that DOJ has has gone into. I mean, is is this a path towards? I mean, this is a viable path. Um, looking at the parchment and saying it's it's time to phase phase out of of this facility. I I, I just go brief and let you go. You're you're you know this issue better than I do. Um, I don't know, um, but I do know that we we've got we're starting to see some budget tightening conversations around the Capitol. And so I don't know how much it would cost to build a new prison uh, that, you know, would, would be able to uh, hold the number of prisoners that you would need to hold that have to, would have to be moved out of parchment. And, and you obviously to that point, I will say, I mean, right next door in Alabama, they just final, they just kind of went through this whole process with the DOJ too. And now they, um, and now they're facing, I think a, a billion dollar price tag for a new prison. I was thinking hundreds of millions. I didn't think billion. So, I mean, those are questions that have got to be asked and you've got to, that have to be a big part of the, the plan that I'm sure uh, Chairman Barnett is, is, is working on or, or thinking thinking about um, but we'll see where this legislation goes that's a that's a it's an important issue does does the, the acquisition of, of a private facility does that kind of fit the the conservative fiscal approach for the fiscal conservative approach i don't i, I don't know enough about okay. that facility and what the cost would be to give you an accurate answer okay. on that. when when parchment took its star turn a few years ago we all learned that that place is run down yeah. and i mean there's been numerous documentaries if people don't know you can check out one on. Uh, didn't 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 early in, in Reeves's first term they spent tens of millions of dollars to get one of the areas of of parchment back at least up to to um, standards. Well, that there have been improved. closures of, yeah. of terrible units, but then we learn later not quite closures, and then there have been some refurbishments and attempts here and there, but then not quite to what. Look, it's been a it's been tough, and and I understand. And I mean, has it become a money pit in some ways? If we're talking about like you know like like tightening budgets and how much has gone into to. To try to I don't think either one of us you, are educated okay. enough. That's fine. To, uh, just, you can't have this many people in prison and it not be a money pit. Okay. It costs a ton of money to keep someone in prison. You think about the health care costs associated with having a 70-year-old man that committed his crime 50 years ago in prison. Think about that. Because you don't just let them die. Yeah. And so the, 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 the price tag that's associated with these thousands upon thousands of people in these facilities, it's, it's astronomical. And that's why I say you, you really can't... Um, build your and spend your way out of this it's just such a huge thing and and you mentioned a moment ago what's happening next door in alabama that's the thought that i had when you were asking this question i Mm -hmm. hope we don't go down that path i hope that we all don't move towards billion dollar super prisons and just decide that we'll just build a a big enough facility so that we could imprison everybody if we wanted to i I know i sound Mm -hmm. like a broken record today but again we got to go back to sentencing laws and, and think about how long we're keeping people in and 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 are we creating reasonable, safe paths to parole for people? Um, yeah, and I, and, I, yeah. and I know you would agree with me. If that 70-year-old that you, that you mentioned had been in prison for 50 years, uh, or whatever your example was, if he's a murderer or a rapist, I don't want him to get out of jail. If, he, if, if, if that's what his sentence was, I don't want him to get out of jail. So that is not what you're saying. You're talking about we shouldn't have prisons filled with, I think, nonviolent prisoners and um, and I know this is if we get into this conversation, we'll never end it. Yeah, but this, uh, I'm sure we we would find common agreement on. on yeah, we just have of, we have to look at it. I mean, it, it's just this is not 
totally unusual to us, although we're kind of at the top of the stack in terms of problems. DOJ's been doing this study, by the way, for a long time. Yeah, there have been years. watchdog groups that have been asking mm-hmm. for their oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a black eye on the state. I think, you know, we should say this is not a good review. This means you have a system that you're continuing to use and you're not doing it in a good way, you have to change something. And again, I hope it's not just a bricks and mortar conversation. We're not going to fix this problem with nicer prisons. Mm -hmm. We're going to fix this problem when we figure out what are we doing population Well, And criminal justice reform was was a big conversation, as you said, eight to 10 years ago. Um, So let's bring it back. Well, there certainly needs to be a review. Okay, what did we pass? What has happened? Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Has this done nothing? Um, but there are a lot of issues to discuss, and certainly you can make a case that we should be talking about this. Well, and I think criminal justice is certainly something we can keep uh, a look at as the legislative session continues. We got spirited toward the end. We'll end it there. Uh, this has been at issue on MPB Think Radio, a weekly discussion about the 2020-20, about the 2024 Mississippi legislative session. If you can't catch us live each Friday at 6.30, at issue can be streamed on demand on the MPB Public Media app or subscribe to the at issue podcast. Each week's podcast includes an extended version of our weekly interview as well as an extended version of this roundtable discussion. And if you'd like to see what we all look like, the full interview and roundtable are available on YouTube. Just search Mississippi Public Broadcasting at Issue. I'm Michael Gidgey from all of us at MPB. Thanks for listening.